Going to have to get myself organised here. I need this on my belt. So the first thing you're going to do is see me fiddle around with my trousers. That's a funny thing to do, isn't it? There we are. There we go. It's not too difficult. It's lovely to be with you this morning. I do know, well, I recognise quite a lot of faces, names I struggled with a bit, didn't I, Olaf? <laughs> but uh, I do indeed, uh, Marion and I, I'm have delighted to be with you, do look, had looked forward to it actually, and, and uh, getting this sort of new, slightly closer relationship developing, which uh, Andrew's referred to, is going to be exciting and good. Um, I've obviously known about you for a long time, known some of you in a sort of second-hand way because we're only just down the road at Winchester and uh, prior to that I was leading the church in Hastings, King's Church Hastings, which is all part of New Frontiers where we've been involved for years and years, um, <laughs> a serious number of years. Um, I'm about my 40th year of church leadership and most of it has been linked in with Terry we were one of the early churches in Hastings that linked with him in the late 1970s so I have indeed been around for a long time but uh, I trust that that won't alter the fact that I believe God still has given me things to share and to do and while I have strength and health I'm glad to serve as best I can and uh, I hope I can serve you with Marion's support and help too Now, we're going to actually look at one of my most favourite subjects, in a way, which is the Bible. We're going to talk about the Bible. I'm coming for two talks uh, this year, two sermons, one now, one in September, and they're a sort of two-part, but don't worry, it's not like a, I don't know, a serial on television. You think, we've got to wait till September to know what happens. It's not quite like that. It's uh, two parts... Two wheels to a bicycle, perhaps, I don't know if it's a good analogy, but it's two parts to a whole thing. I'm going to talk this morning under the title, Making Sense of the Muddle, which is a sort of introduction into why the Bible is so important to us. And then the second talk will be called Making Sense of the Bible, but uh, they will overlap a little bit, so don't worry. I think you'll still be able to read your Bibles between now and September. Um, and of course many of you do. Some of this material I'm sure won't be new to some of you, but I think it's always good for us all to know why we treat this book so importantly, why it is so valuable and so important to us. And I've grown more and more convinced about that the older I've got. I think we need to hold on to our Bibles and to understand it. And not least because of the days in which we live, which we'll get onto in a moment. Let's read a short passage from the Bible, 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 to 17. It'll go up on your screens, thank you. Let's just read it. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, that would be my text for this morning. And unlike my normal style, which is a little more expositional, a little more digging into a passage, I'm not going to quite go that way today. I'm going to refer to the Bible, but I want to give a big, I hope, big picture thing. I want to stir your hearts and stir your faith about our Bibles and as spirit-filled Christians working in the flow of the Word and Spirit together. So let's get a bit of introductory thinking. We all, all of us, work, worship, and witness in the 21st century Britain, I assume. There may be a few visitors here from other countries, but you're probably going to be in a similar sort of culture. 
on the big picture. But particularly in the modern 21st century UK, the Western world, we are living in what is called a postmodern world. It's a bit jargony and it's been around for a while, but it is a reasonable way of describing the culture we're in. What does it mean that we live in a postmodern world? What's it mean that the, the, the flow and the trends in our culture are? Let me give you some quick headlines. What it means to live in this country? Well, first of all, one aspect is there is a definite, clear denial of absolutes. So nobody is allowed to say there is an absolute truth. Well, except the people who say there, is, there are no absolute truths. There is an actual fundamental illogicality to the whole thing. We deny absolutes, and that is the absolute truth across the world. And that really is a hole in the philosophy, but let's not get too philosophical this morning. That's what we live with. We live with people who say, you know, you, you pick and mix what you want to believe. It's all a bit DIY. Uh, if I, is that right for me? Is that my truth and your truth? That's great for you, but it's not for me. Don't try and tell me how to live my life. You... That is what's there, the absolutes. a sort of apparent tolerance of all beliefs, but actually, as long as they don't tell me that they, they have an impact on my life. We live in a culture, secondly, where authority figures, particularly, and authoritative institutions are, by and large, not trusted or respected. Now, there's pretty good reasons for that, I must admit. But now it is really across the board that there is no real respect for authority of any form. So my views are, you know, I can... And the the last bastions like medical profession and perhaps scientists and doctors, even that sort of crumbled. There's no fundamental respect, certainly for government or, or, or church or law courts or politicians, big businesses, banks. They've all uh, shot themselves in the foot, probably literally themselves. But the culture sweeps away that respect for authority. It's a, only authority I accept is what is, uh, uh, I, can, I can accept myself. It's very about me uh, and how I handle it. There is a loss of hope in the future, thirdly. There's a definite cynicism and even a scepticism, a loss of hope, and a sometimes despairing aspects of our culture. I can't explore all these things. It is, of course, fourthly, a me-centred culture, which is what's behind a lot of it, that it's all about me, that I want to be true to myself, good to myself, Uh, it needs to feel good for me. And with that have come some very strange Uh, confusion, sad ones really, there's the gender confusion issue and behind that people don't really know can we talk about male and female any longer and all the things there but behind that is also quite a significant strand of philosophical thinking really which is under it that personhood is separated from being your body from who you are. So the person is different from the human being. Now they say, is that right? Well actually if you dig into it that's Fairly much some of the philosophy now behind abortion, for example, is that child a person. We acknowledge right from conception that's a human being. The DNA is there, but when are they a person? And what about old, older or mentally imperfect? You know, are they still person? You know, this is, and then of course the gender thing. Well, it doesn't matter what my body is, it's what I as a person inside it. Now, I would again say that that is probably a very shaky 
philosophical position. And very probably contrary to even some degrees of science and common sense, but it's very, very, very much what is weaving in behind our culture. We could go on. It's a visual age. Everything is uh, important if it's how it looks. So logos are more important, really, than, uh, than, than, than uh, your own character. You know, it's important what clothes you're wearing. It's more important than what you're like. It's better to look good than be good. And that really is a characteristic of our age. I must be quick. Style, then, is more important than substance. And even politicians and huge issues that I would dare to say, our famous Brexit debate, you get down to sound bites and images and pictures. And some of these things are deep, complex things, but you haven't got time to explore them. It's all got to be just what it looks and catching the headlines. People struggle with taking anything seriously. We're now in a culture of uh, sort of parody and joke, not, not even just with satirical points like we've had for many decades, but just for the sake of it. It's a, a culture of jokers and jesters, really. And there's underneath this freedom of choice, this me-centred thing, that I can keep my options open, I don't want to be committed, things are my choice, don't hold me accountable, it's up to me what I do. And it could go on and on. Fortunately... Behind it, there is an emerging hunger for something more. And that sometimes emerges in uh, searching into other religions and all sorts of strange beliefs, which are a bit disconcerting, but there's a sort of ache in people's heart, a spiritual hunger. But I would say one of the words you can use about the moral thinking, the philosophical position of our culture is it is a muddle. And that muddle comes through again and again in all sorts of ways. People really do not know what to believe. Life seems a muddle. The politics is a muddle. Society's a muddle. Morals are a muddle. <laughs> What's right and wrong? It is a muddle. And someone, or somehow, we need to make sense of the muddle. People are desperately lost. People are looking for things that will be clear and that will take them out of the dark into the light. They're looking for something to shed light on their lives. And they're not expecting to find it, at the moment, almost anywhere. Uh, there is an, almost a despair that anyone's got an answer. Well, here's a bit of encouragement for you. I don't actually think that the culture we live in, in 2019 in modern Britain, is that enormously different from the culture that the first century church was working in. I think it's probably more like it now than it was when I was a young person in a Britain that still had a fairly strong Christian worldview right back in the ancient days, 1950s and 60s. And even that was shaking then. But I actually think the world we're in right now would be more similar to Corinth and Ephesus and Rome in the first century. Why do I say that? Well, again, it needs a lot of time, but those were cultures with a lot of pluralism, a lot of different religions. We went to Corinth, there were 28 different, they found architects, architects, archaeologists, have found uh, the remains of 28 different religions there. Some of them huge temples. Temple to Apollos, which was overtly about homosexual erotica. Temple to Venus, which was overtly heterosexual erotica. It was right there in your face. Big temples, expensive places on hills overlooking the city. That, that's where Paul went when he took the gospel to Corinth. And, that, and you could go through the other. That there were places where people could do anything and behave how they liked. Do any sort of behaviour, deviant or otherwise, as long as 
They didn't question the overarching Roman power and the basic background that the emperor was God. As long as you don't question that, you can really do what you like. The world, you know, there's all sorts of weird and wonderful stuff going on, different religions. That is not so different. Provided we don't question the overall humanist secular philosophy of our culture, the overall broadly liberal humanist secularism that, that you know, that driven by a sort of chance-driven evolution, read sort of very negative view about anything saying there's a creator. Provided you don't question that, you can basically do anything under that umbrella. Problem is, if you're a Christian, believing the Bible, following Jesus, you're going to question that. And actually, in the first century, they had great success preaching the gospel. Lives opened up. They saw thousands saved. And then occasionally, and sometimes seriously, they clashed against that great overarching assumption. And I believe that will be our experience. I believe we can see thousands of people say, we can see people loving to know that there is one Lord, that there's one way to God, Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth and the life. There is one hope for any human being made in God's image across this planet. That's to come to know Jesus. We are not just higher animals. It's no good saying, let's look how animals behave to learn how we behave. No, no, no. We are made in the image of God. We need to look into God's word. We need to pray. We need to understand how to behave from what God said. Now, that's what they were doing in the first century. And it was successful. But it was also sometimes dangerous and difficult. And I think we're now into a world which is more similar to the one in which massive, wonderful, thriving churches were planted in Corinth, in Ephesus, in Rome, and 101 other places. We're nearer to that. So I don't despair. Oh, people won't get saved. I think they will. People don't want to hear about God and the Bible. They do. They don't want the power of the Spirit. They do. But actually, we're going to find it more and more bumping into the overarching assumptions around us. So let's be encouraged. But I think there's a word that I've used already a few times. That the success of the first century and the success in our day will be people of the word and spirit. People who are spirit-filled and Bible-believing. Bible-believing Christians are going to be the ones who make sense of the muddle. The ones who are able to build effective and I would say vibrant, expanding churches even in the face of a growing antagonism in the culture around. So we're talking about the Bible. And the Bible, or the Word of God, is as important as the Spirit of God. He and they work together. <laughs> the, the Word gives the channel, the Spirit flows in. The Word and the Spirit work together. It was true right at the beginning in Genesis 1. When God created everything, it's like the Spirit was hovering. The Spirit actualizes the Word. The Spirit works with the Word. He was hovering. And, and as God spoke, things began to happen. And I would argue it's pretty, probably reasonable to imply that the word spoke. God spoke and the Holy Spirit was the action of God. God at work doing it. So that when you believe the word of salvation, the Holy Spirit moves and brings new life. And you're born again in the Spirit as you've responded to the truth of the word. It's like that. So we do always need the word and spirit together. Of course, one of the problems that we find 
even in our own ranks, let alone with those outside, is that if I start saying, well, the Bible is the answer to the muddle, people will say, well, isn't the Bible a muddle? You do get people to say that. You get some Christians to say that. I don't really understand it. I'm not sure I can make much sense of it. Can the Bible say anything to me in 21st century Britain? Surely many of the things I battle with, the Bible doesn't even touch. Or it doesn't appear to on the surface anyway. And, you know, how can something written thousands of years ago in ancient Israel and then in first century Roman world, how can that apply to me? Well, I'm going to tell you, it really, really can. Not only apply to you, it can bring life and hope to you. And we're going to just enjoy for a few minutes thinking, what is the Bible? Why, why, Why does it work? What's good about it? Well, I am totally convinced from my own experience over decades that this is the living word of God and is vital for my sanity, my survival and my success as a Christian. Honestly, I really, really mean it. Rooted in my life experience. Absolutely. I do mean it. Thoroughly. Deep conviction about it. Let's take a few minutes to, to do a sort of bit of a quick survey about the Bible. What sort of Bible, what sort of book, Becky Barton, is the Bible? Well, let's, let's make a few. Again, they're fairly quick headline stuff, but I hope it catches your interest. The Bible is not a self-enclosed book of theoretical ideas. What do I mean by that? Well, the Bible, if you like, in common terms, is not an end in itself. The Bible is not just a, cl- a self-enclosed book of theories or even rules, if you like. The Bible is a means to an end. The Bible is a door by which you can meet God and he can speak to you. The end is not to have a Bible which you worship and put in a case or put up there. I use, I've got writing in my Bible. My Bible's a working tool. It's a means to an end. The end is not I worship my Bible, it's I worship God and I know God. It's one of the ways, a big way, but not the only way, that God speaks to me and communicates with me. That's the excitement. When you come to it, you're coming to something which is alive with the presence of God. And the Holy Spirit is just waiting to connect you with what God wants to say to you. There is an experience of God that is waiting for you as you come to your Bible and that you will enter into. Our ethics, our choices, which are guided from the Bible, but come out of our experience of God. They need to be rooted in faith. Faith comes by the word of God. Why am I committed to my wife and not going to look at another woman? Why have I been committed to a monogamous relationship with Marion for 43 years? It's rooted in my understanding that's how God sees it, and that's the best thing for me. I am in faith about that. I don't see that as, oh, that's a restriction because I'm a Christian because it tells me so. No, no. God's helped me to understand how I'm made and how it works and how I'm happiest in my relationship with man. It's, it's life and I'm in faith about it and the Bible has helped me, but it's not my rule book for how to be a husband. Do you understand the difference? Because that is very important because that's how we understand the Bible. The Bible is not, next, a merely human book to be studied for intellectual value only. It is not, as I've already said, a rule book, nor is it, as Christians are a little more inclined to use it, 
as a collection of proof texts, i.e. you can take one out and say, ah, there you are. Well, when you do that, you can end up almost using it for anything. I mean, the Mormons baptised for the dead. Some of you probably know that. Where did they get that from? Well, they dredge around in Corinthians, isn't it? 1 Corinthians 15, and they find a verse where Paul, by the way, mentions, if there is no resurrection, why are these people baptised for the dead? One place in one little section, we don't quite know what he was referring to, but it is not a major doctrine anywhere else in the Bible. But if you proof text things, if you go, whoa, look, there's a phrase, that backs up what I want to do. You can do anything with it. Well, the Bible is not just a collection of proof texts or uh, of, of just ideas uh, for intellectual value. Actually, moving on quickly, the Bible is the story of God's dealings with men and women arranged broadly around various themes. So the Bible is living. It's real people in real history meeting a real God. And their experience and their revelation is encapsulated in the Bible. And it has got themes. It's got themes of creation, of covenant, of sin, of redemption. And it's also a, it is a record of process and progress. It is a record of, of how people learn and how God spoke to them and how he, he took them on from one era to another. But there is a climactic era, which we now live in, which is the last days. The time after Jesus, God's son, came, died and rose again. We don't need anybody else writing us a Bible anymore. Because now we have Jesus and we have the openness of the spirit and we have the completion that has gone on. And the New Testament, the new covenant cannot be bettered. We are, as Hebrews says, in a better co- best covenant, a better covenant. And so it's sort of come to a climax. And that age we're in, which will only end when Jesus comes back, is an age when the Bible as it is is vital to us. We don't want any more chapters or books written. In fact, we, sh- we now are in a different era. And that's a big subject, an important subject to understand. And, but, but in its overall collection, the Bible is an amazing book. It's not written by one man. I, I used to have a non-Christian friend at uni who loved to mock my faith. And uh, he'd say, oh, Bible, yeah, some old bloke got in a cave. But what shall I write tonight? I mean, he's just ignorant. I tried to enlighten him. But, but basically, it's not that at all. It's, 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 written, it's a collection of books, the Bible. It's a library of books written over 1,600 years, <coughs> written over uh, three continents, touched three different original languages, Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek, 44 different authors, and yet wonderfully woven together. There's a harmony to it. John Stott, a lovely old writer who's gone to be with Jesus now, said this, in view of the Bible's diversity of human authorship, the best explanation of its unity and coherence seems to be the overshadowing activity of a single divine author behind the human authors. And that's true, that as God used all these people to gather it together. But as I've been saying, get back to my main thing. Next little slide. The Bible is the word of God given in the words of people in history. So it is written, that's from a bloke called Eldon Ladd. It's a quote, but yeah, I better give him credit. But basically, that is an important summary. You've got to remember that. The Bible is... Written, as I said, by real people in real history. 
Meeting with God in the dynamics of their lives. And as we understand that with our reading of the Bible, it's quite important. We'll get back to that probably a little more in our later talk. But it's quite important to realise that's how God has chosen to give us the Bible. So there really was a Paul who really wrote letters to real people in Corinth. And there really was a David who wrote Psalms and, you know, and so on and so forth. So it's quite exciting. There really was a Joshua and he led the children of Israel and had battles and they were pretty gory battles and it really happened. And we've got recorded the bits that God wants us to know. Not everything we know. We like to know a lot of other things we don't know often, but we've got what God wants us to know. We'll get onto that too another time. But it's the words of real people in real history. Each document has a particular occasion. It was written for a reason at a time. There was an occasion for it. Again, that's interesting to know. And that all makes it exciting and vibrant and a little bit challenging. To, to just how do we get what we're meant to get out of it. And I'll briefly give you a little taster on this one because I want to look at it a little more. But the key understanding to understanding what God's saying to you today, personally or corporately, is to have some understanding of what he was saying to them then. It's quite important. It's called the first horizon, if you want to be funny. But there you go. I like a bit of jargon, show I know what I'm talking about. But, but actually, it's quite important. that you, It's not that you're tied to that, but that's how you... You know, God can't use... Can't, can't, it's not the right word. God doesn't use something that is completely out of order... Uh, for where they were at. So here's Paul writing to Corinth. There was a, something he was wanting to say. God had said to him, he was communicating it. You can't take a bit of that and say something completely contrary out of it. You've got to have good due regard. That's how God speaks to you. It's not the only way, but it is an important way of approaching the Bible. We find out what it means now, partly by finding out what it meant then. It's quite important. Okay, as we come to read our Bibles, this morning, as I said, it's a bit unusual as a preach, so I hope it's useful to you. Uh, as we come to read our Bibles, it's important that we have some basic presuppositions. Five, I would say, are fundamental. Now, a presupposition is something where you presuppose when you come to it. Let me give you an example of a bad presupposition for the Bible. If you come to the Bible saying... I don't believe in the supernatural. It is impossible to have miracles of the supernatural. And I pre-assume that, I presuppose that, I will not believe that anything miraculous can happen. We are in an enclosed naturalistic universe. You are immediately going to have problems with certain aspects of the Bible. And it will make you, limit you, in being able to hear from God in the Bible. Now, most of you can get that, and, and some people have to do work on that, and you have to help them by the Holy Spirit. But we have, if we're going to, we're talk, I'm talking to you assuming most of us want to follow Jesus. If you're here and you're not a Jesus follower this morning, thank you for being here. I hope this is helpful, and I hope it quickens your, uh, whets your appetite to learn more about Jesus and God. But this is how Christians have got to approach the Bible. And I'm saying it to all of us, young and old, including myself. I love to come back and remind myself of these things. This is not just Darwin, yeah, ABC. No, no, it's important to remind ourselves. First of all, we, we believe the Bible is divinely inspired. Now, that comes out of our reference at the beginning. So we'll just remind you of Timothy. won't read it again, but the next 
uh, screen, and thank you, just puts, I think, Timothy 3, 16 to 17, not Timothy, yeah, 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, up. Just, there it is, to remind you, when you come to the Bible, brothers and sisters, Christians, together, we need to have an assumption that this is God's word, that it is divinely inspired. It is a divine product. It is the activity of God's Holy Spirit on the minds of men and women, as mostly men, I acknowledge, so that what they wrote was not just their ideas, but actually was something God wanted us to have. It was a divine revelation. It was breathed out by the Holy Spirit. All scripture is God-breathed. That does not mean the writers were inspired people who always got things right all the time. In fact, it doesn't mean that everything they wrote was as inspired as what we have. So, for example, Paul wrote, it would appear, at least two other letters to the Corinthians we don't have in our Bibles. And at an intellectual level, it would have been interesting to have them, by the way, Lord, because it would have helped us to understand one or two things, because he refers to something. It's like we've got one end of a telephone conversation. What? What what did you say? (laughs) And and so, you know, but we have that, that. God wants it that way, because then we're dependent on him. We've got the bit God wants us to have. That's how I come. I'm believing it. Well, honestly, you have to. It's right way, too. This is inspired. It's not to say Paul was always an inspired man, whatever he's doing. But this is what God breathed out and God made sure we got. And it had an, a basic authority. That's an important thing to remember, which has been recognized from the start. Sometimes people say, oh, well, yeah, how did they choose the Bible? And you get all sorts of nonsense in those books that were very popular once upon a time by Dan somebody or other. I can't remember his name now. Did read them. Dan Brown. Brown, yeah. Thank you. Glad you're here. <laughs> Dan Brown. You know, and there's all sorts of things. Look, look, actually, if you want to know quickly, the uh, Old Testament canon, almost no, no dispute at all, because Jesus accepted the Old Testament canon of Scripture, all the books in the Old Testament, that he accepted their inspiration. That's what we do, and for other reasons as well. But the New Testament... Basically what happened in simple terms is the whole collection of writings are moving around the early church in those first couple of hundred years. And there's a whole lot of collection of writings. And actually there are a lot of stuff in with what we've got. So it's quite a broad selection. But what is ultimately looked at in the great sort of um, meetings that that finalised this, and it was a cause of pressure from outside and disputes and conflicts... People essentially said, gathering the church together, what do we all believe has divine authority? So the body of writings we have as the New Testament was largely undisputed as we all believe that has got divine authority. But then everybody had their own little extra bits that they would like to add in. And that's where a lot of the debate and dispute was. Well, no, should we have James? One or two got in there that one or two didn't like. But basically, it was... And do you know, we think, oh, that's so funny. It's not funny. If you're a spirit-filled church, you understand. You have prophetic words, you weigh them. And, and, and you all feel, well, that, that one really counts. I'm not so sure about that. That one seems a bit weird. And, you know, but, but this was a much more serious and thorough process, but not a thousand miles from that. What has authority of God? What do we all recognise God's in? 
And actually, believe it or not, please believe it because it's the truth, most of what you have in your New Testament, the vast majority, there was no dispute about. It wasn't a raffle where they all picked their ending. There was no dispute. So actually, there were some, the debates were all on the margin. Should we put this one in or that one? We like it. We think it's horrible, or whatever they said to each other. Okay, the Bible, let's hurry on. The Bible is not ambiguous. These are presuppositions. Remember where I'm at. I'm enjoying myself, which is always dangerous. You don't need your lunch, do you? Um, I am enjoying myself. The Bible is non-ambiguous. Oh, you say, what's that mean? Well, it means it hasn't got hundreds of different meanings. You can make of it what you want. Now, actually, that is common sense. Why is that, John? Well, when the person wrote it, do you think they had six different things? They were not writing riddles. They were not trying to confuse people. Paul was not writing to Corinth to say, they'll all argue about this. They won't have a clue what I'm on about. There you go. Sort that lot out. I mean, that was not... Let's use an illustration, which is not my own. I've got it from a book, but I think it's a good one. Nathan. Say Nathan writes a letter to a very good friend in South Africa. Oh, in America. <laughs> a very good friend in America, where Julian comes from. Now he writes a, a, but he writes a long newsy letter. I know they're all emails these days. Stick with me. I'm old-fashioned. So he writes a long newsy letter. But unfortunately, it gets lost in the post for 2,000 years. And it's found 2,000 years later. And, and, and people are delighted. This is a long newsy letter from a bloke living in Alton in Hampshire in 2019. Oh, this is amazing. And there's scholars. But unfortunately, since then, everything's changed. England's no longer England. We don't exist as England. The language that Nathan spoke has long fallen into disuse. It's as, it's as relevant as... Uh, old English or worse, you know, right back at Chaucer's time and before. People don't even understand the words he's using. And there's all sorts of problems. So scholars in universities have to look at it. And they argue furiously about the meaning of Nathan's letter. I think he means this. What's he mean by Brexit? He just keeps referring to Brexit. When he, when he refers to Brexit now, he doesn't have to explain it all, does he? When he refers to Donald Trump, he doesn't have to explain it all. Make America great again. He only has to say it. And everybody knows what he's talking about. Is that right? 2,000 years, you've got to think, well, what was going on in Britain at that time? What was that common market stuff? Oh, sorry, old-fashioned word. EU stuff. Oh, what was it? Oh, the president of America. He's referring to the president. Why would he refer to the president of America? Uh, You know, and so on and so forth. Now, there's two wonderful lessons out of that. One is it's not ambiguous. He's not writing riddles to his friend. He's communicating with his friend. But the other side of it, to really get the best out of it, you've got to understand his setting, his history, what, what the words he's using mean, haven't you? So that's really a little bit how it works with the Bible. But what you understand is it has not got six different meanings. You can make of it what you like. We're trying to find out what God was saying then to understand what he's saying now. Not so that we can twist it, to change it, make it do what we like. But to say, what was he saying about these things? What was he saying about church leadership? What was he saying about the Bible? What was he saying about men and women? Obviously, big issue, certainly if you're in Corinthians. What, why does he say that there and that there? What's he, why would he do that? They almost contradict. What can we find out? So we have to think, we can't say, oh, that's what he was saying, but we don't care because we wanted to do say that. We can't do that about anything in the Bible. 
But what we can say is, was he really saying what historically people have said he was saying, or is it actually been a little bit twisted? Because that has happened, of course. But it isn't ambiguous. Okay, let's move on quickly. God is a God of revelation. That means we believe God wants to communicate with us. Do you know, it's lovely. God is a communicating God. It's wonderful. I mean, he's made us and we can communicate. So why would God sit there in silence? He doesn't. God speaks all the way through the Bible. God spoke at creation. God speaks. He speaks through the prophets. He's speaking all the time from end to end. In these last days, he's spoken through his son, Jesus Christ. That God loves to communicate. He's a communicator. Don't come to your Bible thinking, oh, he doesn't want to say to me. Of course he wants to say, he's speaking to you all the time. Not only in the Bible, I hasten to add, but in the Bible he will. So you don't come to the Bible thinking, oh, this is so difficult. Or you've got to have a degree in theology before you even dare open it. That's nonsense. God wants you to hear his voice. There needs to be humility. Again, we'll talk about that another time, how we approach it. That'll be in a later talk. But, but actually, there is a basic presupposition that God communicates and wants to communicate. And can I say, that means, by and large... In broad terms, God wants to communicate what is most obvious when you first read it. It's not a book of riddles. So when it says Jesus broke the bread and the fish, the the, the, the fish and the bread, and fed 5,000 people, it does not mean that the example of the little boy made everybody embarrassed that everybody shared their dinner, shared their picnic. Which is what liberal theologians who do not believe in the supernatural will tell you. I know. I've read it. That's rubbish. You've got to say, either says there's a miracle, which it does, of multiplying the food 5,000. You either accept that or you say it's a load of fairy stories and I don't treat it seriously. That is a valid option to say it's a load of fairy stories. But it is, I believe, deceitful to take it and say, well, actually, it's a really nice story. But, of course, what it means is everybody shared their picnic. They took the example of a little boy. The little boy ends up as the hero. They took the example of a little boy. Jesus said, oh, look at this nice little boy. He's given us his lunch. Now, all of you be nice to each other. Poppycock. And when it says Jesus walked on the water, that's what it means. It doesn't mean he found a sandbank, luckily, which is, I've also read. I've read it. I've read it by intelligent people with DDs after their name and DTs and PTs and PhDs. Honestly, I've read it myself. So I know it's nonsense, but it's, it's coming with this presupposition that somehow it can't be a miracle. You're going to struggle with that approach. I've gone off my track, but it's important. God was, and what God is saying first and foremost is going to be, if it's easy to understand, that's what he's saying. Now, there are difficult bits, of course, but the, the most obvious is where you always start. Amen? The inerrancy of Scripture... Okay, that means it's got no errors in it as it was originally written in the original language. It's not claiming perfection in translation. But it is worth saying, Jesus clearly believed that the Old Testament was true. And he actually used some of the, referred to rather, some of the things that modern people struggle most with. He referred to Adam and Eve, he referred to the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, Jonah. So Jesus did not think these were just symbolic or allegories or something else. He, he believed they happened. Uh, Lot's wife turning to a pillar of salt. He, he spoke as if they had happened as written. 
Amen? That's what we do. And we do not believe it's full of nonsense and contradictions and fairy stories. Jesus used the Bible's history to portray truth. And Jesus did not make any distinction between doctrinal and historical scripture, i.e., the, the, the historical stuff is a bit suspect and weird, but just the, the principles of, of how to be a good follower of God are the bits you take seriously. He didn't do that. He treated it all seriously and all as the truth. Finally, on these five, there is a difference between inspiration and illumination. Now, that means this, that the Holy Spirit was involved in inspiring the Bible, and that is without error. This is the Bible as God wants it, us to have it. However, to understand it, I need the Holy Spirit's help. I need illumination. And that can be subject to error because of my own frailty. Our illumination is fallible even if the inspiration is not. Illumination is it being lit up to help us to understand it and apply it in our lives. And we need to humbly seek the Holy Spirit's help for that. And that's where we'll need to understand things so that we don't get too dogmatic, too early anyway. Some things you can be dogmatic about, but some things you've got to be really sure before you are. Because the Holy Spirit is not going to, for example, suddenly convey something to your mind that has never been thought about or seen for the last 2,000 years of spirit-filled Christians. And some people, quite big subjects, to be ruthlessly honest, don't follow that principle. Big subjects, things like same-sex marriage and uh, other aspects of things like that, where you will find Christians now f- somehow justifying it and finding it by ducking and weaving in the Bible. Look, if nobody else has seen that for 2,000 years, you must humbly say it's unlikely it's in there. Now, I, now you, some of you are going to... I can see the faces going busy. You've got to think this through. This is for thinking this morning. It's not me telling you what to do. It's me laying out for you there are some big issues. If you, How do you trust your Bible? Do you realise that the illumination we have, which we all need, must be with humility and openness because we are not perfect in that, but if there are some strong guidelines on it and that my illumination can't be unique in history. There's one guideline. Or my era's illumination might be a slightly broader point. We'll get back to that. I, I know we will. I'm going to conclude in a moment, so I'm going to conclude now, actually. I'm going to conclude with some fast conclusions to give you something to think about and talk about over lunch. Okay? Here we go. These conclusions are the implications, if you like, of what I've been saying about what the Bible is. Let's put up that one. If the Bible is the word of God... There, there for, uh, it should be therefore. Beg your pardon, that's my typo. Sorry, do you understand? There's a wrong there. It should be there for, without an E on the end of it. If the Bible is the word of God, therefore, my instruction help, uh, help an instruction. Okay, I tr- trust you with me? Okay. So if that's true, then what does it mean? First one, the Bible takes precedence over my traditions. So if that is true... No tradition, including charismatic new church traditions, can be more important than what clearly comes out of the Bible. Next, the Bible takes precedence over my experience. 
Now, that would be the huge battle around cessationism. And if you don't know what that means, people saying that the miracles have stopped, there's no tongues and prophecy today. One of the battles was that people weren't experiencing these things. Weren't, they say, oh, I don't speak in tongues. I don't know anybody who speaks in tongues. I don't know anything about prophecy. So when I look at 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, 14, I have to come with my... I have to change it. I'm bending it to fit my experience. We all must be careful we don't do that. We do, our experience does not take precedence over what it says. My experience is the thing that's got to bend. My experience will change, not the word of God. Amen? That's true of a thousand and one things, some more important than the one I've referred to. Right, next one, quickly. Bible takes precedence over my opinions and preferences. And that's really important because we're in the postmodern world. That's where I started with it. Where, you know, it's all about me and my choices and what I think and my truth and what I think. Well, the Bible takes precedence over you and your choices. Really? Yeah. Because you're submitting to the authority of God, not the book, the God behind the book. And you're looking to obey and follow this wonderful living God. And what he reveals to you, which will be largely through the Bible, must take precedence over what you think and what your preferences are. Let's move on. These are big subjects. The Bible is my authority, not, I'll take precedence, I beg your pardon, over my culture's values. That's another sort of angle. The Bible takes precedence. Let's halt on that for a moment. My culture's values, mine literally, John Groves, because I've lived in England for nearly 68 years now, my culture has massively changed in the last 60 years. Now, I am not a fuddy-duddy old so-and-so. I've got, look, I've got to prove it to you. I've got an iPhone. But, but, but listen, the Bible takes precedence over all the cultural ducks and weaves of the last 50, 60 years. I mean, they're not all bad. I'm not saying they're all bad. I'm just saying I'm not dictated to by what my culture has done over the last 50, 60 years. I'm dictated to by the Word of God illuminated through the Spirit, walking the Spirit. That must take precedence. Next, the Bible is my authority, not my ability to accept things. You see, it's such an obvious one in a way. But you, you think, well, you know, people say, I, I, I will give a little caution on this. We do need people to be illuminated. I want you to be in faith about the Bible. So in a sense, I don't want to violate your conscience. I want you to, I want you to understand what the Bible says. We could take an obvious example, baptism, baptism water. I would not force that on someone by saying, well, just do it because I tell you. I want you to see it in the Bible and be in faith for it. So I want to be careful. But for our point of view, as an individual, not me telling anyone, me or you, I need to come humble that this is beyond what I can accept it's a bit like the experience one again. This is about me shaped to God, not God shaped to me. So the Bible's authority is not limited by my ability to accept things. And final three, and they are quick. I can see you worrying about the time. I must give the Bible time and attention. If this is the word of God for me, it's got to have a fairly important part in my life. I must obey what the Bible clearly says. When I get it and I see it, I've got to treat it very seriously. And finally, I must come to the Bible with an attitude of expectancy and faith. God is alive. God 
is with me. The Spirit of God's with me. He is a communicating God. And he wants me to see wonderful things in his word. And so I need to come praying a prayer that is in 1 Psalm 119 and verse 18. It used to be on my scripture union reading years ago. But it's a good prayer. It's a good prayer. So when you come to the Bible, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. That's a great prayer to come to the Bible with. Let's stand together. And then you can, I'm going to pray, and then you can wrap it up. (laughs) Lord, as we finish, I thank you for giving us your word. I thank you that we have a Bible. I thank you, Lord, that you have inspired different people all through a long period of time to write down these things and that Lord you've guided and guarded right through 2,000 years so that I have your word in my own language and I can freely read it I thank you I'm not in a country which makes it illegal to own a Bible I thank you Lord we're not in fear this morning that police are going to break up this meeting I am allowed to talk about the Bible I thank you Lord I'm concerned about my nation but I'm actually very grateful for my nation I'm grateful for its freedoms I'm grateful for the ease with which I can buy a Bible or download a Bible onto my phone and read it And Lord, I thank you that there's no shortage of Bibles for me. But Lord, I pray that you will help us all to treat it seriously, to take it to heart, to hear you speak to us about all matters of our personal practice and our church practice and our our behaviour in one place and another. Lord, guide us through your word. Lord, open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your word. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Wow. Please stay standing a moment. I don't know about you, I feel like we've just been served the most phenomenally rich feast. And I want to encourage you to receive this and embrace it as part of that. Can we just thank John for what he's brought to us?